Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast presented by Subway. I'm Joseph Bacharo. I'm in studio as always with co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What is up is that the NBA season, the slog of the regular season, the 82 games, the war of attrition, it's over. And the playoffs are, depending on when you're listening to this, at most 48 hours away. Yeah, exciting times, man. It's uh, It's been a long regular season, as I guess they all are, um, but I'm very excited to get the real season underway. And I wouldn't say it's a particularly compelling first round, but um, definitely some interesting matchups that uh, could go either way, and um, I'm looking forward to diving in. Yeah, well, let's let's do just that. Let's, uh, let's go through the eight first round series and kind of how we see them playing out and, um, you know, what we think are the things to watch in each series. We're going to do things a little bit different uh, this week. Those of us who have been listening to us lately know about our Sweet versus Heat segment brought to you by Subway, whose new Sweet versus Heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. Usually we do um, a couple of teams we think are hot and a couple of players we think are sweet. Uh, this week, again, we're going to do a little different as our playoff preview. So we're each going to pick one series that we think is the sweet series to watch. And then we're also going to pick a coach each from one of the 16 playoff teams that we think is on the hot seat, uh, depending on how the playoffs go. So let's just start with the series breakdowns um, and give me your sweet series of the first round. The one I'm looking forward to most is um, Blazers Thunder. Okay. I think, first of all, just aesthetically, that's the one I think is going to be most engaging and most fun to watch. But I also think there are a lot of compelling matchup dynamics going on there. And I think it's pretty interesting also that the Blazers seemingly were trying to set up a matchup with the Jazz. Uh, they didn't play Dame or CJ in the regular season finale. Got down 28 points to the Kings in a game which, if they'd lost, would have dropped them down to the four seed and had them match up with the Jazz. And as you know, I was really hoping that that was going to happen. Because, because you had a blurb ready. I... I was so convinced that that was going to be the first round series that I'd already basically prepped my preview for that series. And by a, a series of truly extraordinary circumstances, um, starting with Paul George's game-winning three-pointer against the Rockets on Tuesday night, uh, continuing on with Mo Harkless's buzzer-beating game-winning three-pointer against the Lakers later that night, and then from there continuing with the Blazers' skeleton crew of you know jake layman and anthony simons both of whom played 48 minutes in the regular season finale coming back from that 28 point deficit and beating the kings the universe has conspired against me uh and and that jazz blazers blurb will never see the light of day but i don't know it's interesting because look the thunder swept this season series for nothing and i do think even though i'm I kind of think the Jazz are a better team than the Thunder. I do think that the Blazers matched up a little bit better with the Jazz. So I can understand their hesitation, especially given that they got swept in the regular season. But I, I, I think that the Blazers have a shot here. I really do. So, you know, given the way that the, the Thunder played down the stretch of the season, uh, given the way the Blazers managed to kind of keep things together in spite of Nurkic's injury and obviously McCollum's injury and... I mean, we can talk about that. He, he hasn't looked totally right since he's come back from that knee issue. And if he's not at 100%, that is going to spell trouble. But I think the Blazers have a shot here. What do you think? I don't. Um, okay. So 
a couple things. I, I love the Blazers team, this Blazers team this year. I, we've talked about it throughout the year. At the beginning of the year, I was the one saying they're still going to make the playoffs and flirt with 50 wins. Um, you know, I was really bummed, as we all were, about the Nurkic injury. I don't even necessarily buy too much into regular season series when I'm trying to look at uh, how a playoff series will go down. But I do think when one team beats another team four times and then the team that's lost four times loses arguably their second most important player mm -hmm. for the playoffs, I, I think it does matter. And then you mentioned CJ McCollum being hobbled. Um, you know, we've talked about the Blazers get into trouble when their opposition has a type of perimeter defenders who can lock down right. Dame and CJ. Well, OKC's got a guy named Paul George that can defend on the perimeter pretty well. Even a guy like Terrence Ferguson, like they can shut down um, opposing guards. And if CJ's hobbled and Yusuf Nurkic, who was like a nice release valve for them when those guys were, was trapped, isn't on the court, the amount of attention Dame's going to get from very good defenders is going to be a lot... And he might struggle again, and it's going to add mm. to this narrative that he's not a playoff performer, even though... I, yeah. Well, we'll see. I guess it's not a narrative at this point. But yeah, we will see. I'm not saying it's guaranteed to happen, but I just kind of think that's the way it's trending. Um, mm. But the one thing I wanted to mention with the Blazers... So I'm, I'm doing a piece that'll come out at some point before the playoffs start on what the statistical profile of a champion in the NBA looks like, and specifically looking at like more recent history. But... I I was using it to like eliminate teams from the 16 team field like that don't fit the bill, and a few teams, two or three teams stood out as basically checking every box of what a uh, a championship profile looks like. The Blazers came within um, a few spots on defense of checking every box for what modern champions look like statistically, and I think you could argue with Yusuf Nurkic on the court they are almost that defensive team. So it just kind of goes to show, I'm not saying the Blazers actually would have won a championship, but it goes to show you they were one of like three or four teams who would have checked every box had Nurkic been healthy. And I don't think people realize how good they really were. Yeah, and I, I will say, I think they're still pretty good. Yeah. I mean, they finished with 53 wins and they closed out the season strong. Obviously, they had a pretty light schedule down the stretch. But I, I think that's a good point you make about the Thunder's defense. Like, Lillard is going to be seeing extra bodies every time he tries to turn the corner. And if you want to look at a team that is kind of capable of replicating what the Pelicans did last spring, the Thunder really are that team. I mean, you've got Paul George, Jeremy Grant, like you said, Terrence Ferguson. Like, these are guys who are long, athletic, and can really put a lot of pressure on the ball. I think the Blazers are a little bit better equipped to deal with that this season, even with Nurkic out. But... I think they probably would have preferred to play against a Jazz defense that doesn't trap and that prefers to play a drop and, and would have been keeping Rudy Gobert close to the rim rather than bringing him out to the perimeter. One thing that I think could change that dynamic is obviously Steven Adams has been a huge part of that aggressive Thunder defense, and I just don't think that he has looked like the same guy in the second half of the season. He had a pretty bad ankle injury at one point in time, and I don't know if that's what's hobbling him. But if he's not at 100%, I mean, that Thunder defense is just not the same animal and if he is attackable in the pick and roll then I think you know Lillard could have a lot a lot of success obviously that goes both ways because at the other end the the Blazers are going to have Ennis Cantor playing big minutes in the middle and if there is anybody who knows that you can attack Ennis Cantor in the pick and roll it's Billy Donovan you know the sort of notorious clip from a couple playoffs ago when you saw him mouthing on the bench can't play Cantor I'm sure we're going to see a ton of Westbrook Adams pick and roll and Paul George Adams pick and roll. Like they're going to attack him every time down the floor. So that gives me a bit of concern. 
On the whole, uh, I was tempted to go with the Blazers here, but ultimately I think I'm going to pick the Thunder in six. Yeah, uh, I'll go Thunder in six as well. Uh, you know, I'm going OKC in five, but we're both going in with five. the Thunder. Yeah, yeah, again, I just I like this Blazers team, but uh, I don't think they have the horses to run um, with OKC right now. Let's um, let's stay in the West and go with my sweet series of the first round, Houston Utah. So you were mentioning how crazy like the West seeds kind of swung in the last 24 hours of the season. Again, the Rockets. Looked like they had the number two seed all sewn up. They get beaten by a Paul George game winner. Mo Harkles hits a buzzer beater. What is this Mo Harkles? Is that a thing that I'm not aware of? Harkless, my bad. Mo (laughs) Harkless hits a buzzer beater. How could you be Mo Harkless? Hits a buzzer beater in Portland shortly after Paul George beats the Rockets. Then 24 hours later, the Blazers with their scrubs come back from 28 down against the Kings while the Nuggets finish the game on a 15 nothing run against the Timberwolves. And all that happens in the span of 24 hours. And that's the difference between the Rockets being the two seed and instead being the four seed, having to draw the Jazz in the first round, probably getting the Warriors in the second round. Just a hilarious sequence of events to lead the, the Rockets into this matchup, which I think is going to be tough for them. I, I'm i going with the Rockets. I mean, we'll, I guess, get to our predictions later in the in this segment, but... I think the Jazz are going to make it tough for them. I think we saw this last year where the Jazz went into that series against the Thunder and everyone thought like they didn't have the top-end talent to compete with a team that had Russell Westbrook and, and Paul George. And maybe probably, people are probably thinking the same thing about a team with James Harden, Chris Paul, and Clint Capella. But Rudy Gobert is really freaking good. You know, he doesn't score like a traditional star, but what he does on the defensive end is completely transcendent. Donovan Mitchell has proven that he can... You know, maybe not be the best player in a series, but he can take over a game or two uh, with his scoring. And he's kind of like a gamer on the other end as, as well, even though he might not be the best defender. Like, I I think Utah will muck it up just enough to make this series interesting. Mm-hmm. And they'll limit Harden to, like, a couple of those games where, yeah, he gets, like, 39 points, but he does it on 12 of 37 shooting or something. Yeah, I think... The Jazz are really well equipped to play that drop coverage where they're basically coaxing Harden into floater range. Um, You know, they have really solid physical guards who can kind of stay attached and and provide those rear view pursuits. And then, of course, they have Rudy Gobert, who is just going to be an absolute bulwark defending the rim. And so I think we'll see... You know, something pretty similar to what we saw the Bucks do in the regular season, which is concede the lane, uh, force him to his right hand, and, you know, just try and make it tough on him to sling passes out of the drive and force him to, to go to that floater, which, you know, to his credit, he's really improved this season. He, he's become much, much more dangerous in floater range, but I think that's something that the Jazz will happily concede. I, I think they have the goods to do a really good job on him in this series, but... I, I mean, last year, they just had a really, really hard time scoring against Houston. I'll say this. Th- that series went five last year. I think the Jazz are a little bit better this year. I think the Rockets are a little bit worse. But I do I, I do think, that, like, just given Houston's top-end talent, and, I mean, I, I just don't know if the Jazz have enough offensive firepower to hang. But I, I agree. I think, you know, it's an interesting matchup, and I think it it's going to be pretty close. Yeah, I'm going Rockets in six. Yeah, I, but I the same. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is going seven. Yeah, I, I think it could. I think, you know, this has a chance to probably be like one of, if not the tightest first round series. Um, I, I'm still leaning pretty heavily toward Houston. 
but I also had Rockets and six, so you know it could go any which way. I just as as much as I do think it'll be close, it's really hard for me to imagine the Jazz winning, right? Um, because I don't know. There's just there's something about the team, and maybe it's because they don't have like an elite scorer that I that I really worry, especially against a team that switches as liberally as Houston does and will kind of try and make you a one on one team. I just don't have a ton of confidence in them being able to win this series. Now, if they'd matched up with the Blazers, as it seemed like they were yeah. going to initially, uh, I, I would have had quite a bit of confidence in them winning. And obviously, we talked about all the improbable outcomes that led to them matching up against Houston instead. I don't think anybody made out worse in this situation than Utah did. Yeah. And again, even though I'm picking Houston, I will say, I, I do think... Forget getting the Warriors in the second round. I think the Jazz are going to like beat them up a little bit in the first round. Like I think they're going to get to the second round a little worse for wear than they would have been had they drawn another team. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the Jazz are super physical. Yeah. They make you earn it, and it's it's not going to be a picnic. But uh, again, yeah, I'm I'm pretty solidly going with the Rockets here. All right, let's move uh, to the East for the series that honestly might end up being the most tightly competed. Uh, series, not a lot of star talent, depending on how much you like Boston's young guys, I guess, but Boston, Indiana. You've been itching to talk about your Pacers, even without Victor Oladipo, so tell me why, just as you told us last year, why the Pacers were going to give the Cavs trouble, and they did. Why are the Oladipo-less Pacers going to give the Boston Celtics trouble? I mean, they're not really. like I, they'll, they'll be a pain in the ass because they play super hard, they they defensively are physical at every exchange. They hedge hard. Um, they're another team that can kind of just beat you up. So I think they'll be annoying. I don't think they'll pose any kind of a real threat. And you know, this is something I I wrote toward the end of the regular season when the Pacers really f- started to fade after basically having a nice run against this cupcake schedule in the wake of Oladipo's injury. The schedule got tough, and they ran into some real problems. And it's the same problem as they've always had when Oladipo's not on the floor, which is that they just don't have enough individual shot creation. They just don't. And so for a Celtics team that is built to switch across pretty much every position, I don't know how the Pacers are going to generate enough offense. And it's like the Celtics, I think, would happily switch like a 1-5 pick and roll and let Al Horford or even Aaron Baines take his chance against, say, Darren Collison. Carlson's not really an aggressive enough downhill attacker to take advantage of that situation. What ends up happening is like the Pacers just run a bunch of their offense out of the post. None of their guys are really good post scorers either. And their only guy who's actually a good post passer is DeMontis Sabonis. And ultimately, like, yeah, he can make a lot of good things happen. He's had a fantastic season. But if your offense is relying on him to make plays out of the post, I don't think that's going to be super effective. Now, the Marcus Smart injury changes things a bit. You know, for me, I might have gone Celtics in five. I'm going Celtics in six because of that injury, I do, I do think, does make them a little bit less effective as a switching team. But I, I just don't see the Pacers generating enough points to really make this a series. Yeah, since since Oladipo went down, the Pacers are 16-19 and 19 with the league's 23rd ranked offense. You know, mm-hmm. you talk about not being able to score enough points. Like, that's just not getting it done in the playoffs, not in the modern NBA. I think... I think the Celtics win it in five, probably at four or five. I agree that the Marcus Smart injury is big. I mean, I had it as the X factor of the series in our written up um, Eastern Conference preview, which people can go check out. 
but I I just don't think the Pacers have enough talent. Like even even as dispiriting as the Celtics have been this year, and even with Marcus Smart out, who and Marcus Smart for the most part really has been kind of like the spiritual leader of this team this year. He's one of the only guys that seems to still have that fighting spirit that the Celtics had last year. He still brought it and you know, maybe that does affect them, like him not being there and that presence not being there. But even if you don't like the Celtics young guys anymore, even if you concede that Al Horford has lost a step, Kyrie Irving is the best player in this series by a mile. Yeah. Um, the Celtics are the vastly superior team from a talent perspective without Oladipo out there. They have home court advantage. I, it's just all shaping up for like a pretty easy Celtics victory. Having said that, I think it could be one of those series where maybe they sweep or win it in five, but each game is super competitive just because that's right. what the Pacers are. Yeah. Well, as I said, I mean, I'm, I'm predicting it to go six. So I think, you know, at least on paper, it might look pretty close. I, I more just think that I don't, I don't really feel like the Celtics are ever going to be particularly threatened. One thing I'm actually interested to see is I, I wonder if the Pacers won't start Corey Joseph over Darren Collison. I don't think it would be really part of Nate McMillan's MO to do something like that. But Kojo is like a vastly superior defender to Collison is by far the Pacers best option on Kyrie. And that's an offensive downgrade, but I don't know that the offensive downgrade is enough to make up for the defensive difference between those two guys. And like you said, Irving's the best player in the series by far. I think it might behoove the Pacers to just shadow him with Corey Joseph and take their chances that way. And again, I don't I don't think they're losing that much offensively that the trade-off at the other end would be worthwhile to roll with Collison as your starter. No, I agree with that. Um, I I think we're both kind of in agreement here, it sounds like, on the fact that the Celtics get into the second round with relative ease. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get to the next series, kind of some breaking, not kind of, we got breaking news here. It was whispered about on uh, Thursday morning now, coming to fruition on Thursday afternoon, but it sounds like Dave Yeager is out in Sacramento. We're going to get to some playoff coaches on the hot seat later. I just want to really quickly touch on this because just when you think the Sacramento Kings are starting to climb out of this abyss that they've been wandering in for the last decade and a half, just when you think you can wake up the morning after a, a regular season ends and think, you know, the Kings had a positive year this year. Like, they're on the right track. They go and do something like this. Obviously, we're not, you know, in the locker room in Sacramento. We don't know the job Dave Yeager was doing, like, on a day-to-day basis. But the results were pretty damn promising this year. The young guys, especially Darren Fox, were developing beautifully under him. They looked like one of the young teams on the rise in the association. They had their, even though it was a losing season, their best season in, like, 10 or 11 years. And Dave Yeager loses his job for it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he lost his job necessarily for the on-court coaching job that he did. It seems like there had been friction between him and the front office pretty much all season long. So in that sense, I guess it's not totally surprising. I, I'll i reserve judgment until I see what they do next. And if they bring in a coaching hire who is still a good cultural fit and has a vision for you know how the team can play moving forward, then... I think this will work out fine. It's just, it's hard to believe that given the King's history of making ridiculously impulsive decisions that backfire spectacularly. I mean, you remember a few years back when the Kings got off to that great start, Boogie goes out with meningitis, 
And when he's ready to return to the lineup, Mike Malone is gone. And that they never got that season back on track. They never got back on track in the Boogie era, period. Mike Malone doing pretty all right now. Yeah, he's okay. So I, I just think, you know, Jaeger did a good enough job this season. I mean, you, you look at how he sort of overhauled that team's identity, had them playing up-tempo, had them defending, I think, above their heads a lot of the time. I, I mean, that to me would be enough to look past a bit of disagreement with the front office. I don't know how bad things were. And again, I don't know what the Kings' vision is for what they do next, but uh, it certainly seems like a bit of an impulse move and one that, like the Malone move, could come back to bite them. Yeah, I got no complaints about anything you said there. The Kings, even when they're on the right track, they're somehow on the wrong track. Let's go back to 16 teams that are not on the wrong track. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Denver, San Antonio. I, this one really interests me because um, I know the Spurs aren't the Spurs of yesteryear, mm-hmm. but they are still Spursy. You know, like they're still coached by Greg Popovich. They've still managed to construct a, at times, semi respectable defense despite having one of the worst defensive rosters in the league. They still have these two kind of like... I, I, I want to say, I actually think that that line of thinking might at this point be a bit overstated. Like you think that they their their roster isn't as bad defensively as we thought it was? Yeah, I do think that. I, I think given the jump that Derek White has made at that end of the floor, um, and, and ever, ever since Pirtle has started getting regular minutes, actually... I mean, Rudy Gay has been pretty decent defensively. Like Rudy Gay, under the radar, has had a pretty awesome season for San Antonio on both ends of the court. One of his best seasons, maybe his best season, honestly. And for him to do that at age, what, 32, after coming back from that Achilles injury is pretty incredible. But um, I don't think this is like an above-average defensive team in terms of their true talent level, but I don't think it's as bad as we thought it was coming into the season. So anyway, I'll let you continue now. No, I think I think that's a fair statement to make. I just still think when you're starting DeMar DeRozan when for a chunk of the season you're starting Patty Mills mm-hmm. even LaMarcus Aldridge who I think is a solid like one-on-one post defender but not a great like defender in space a lot of their minutes were soaked up by very weak defenders so for them um, to have made the strides they made on that on the floor I, I, I still think is like, pretty remarkable and yeah they just they're kind of like this old head team and the Nuggets who no one really has faith in yet. It's just like, of course, they had to draw the Spurs, right? To yeah. like really test how ready they are for the playoff spot. Spurs really test how much playoff experience matters. Exactly. Because, because the on Nuggets paper, are a better team. Exactly. The Nuggets are the vastly superior team on paper. But the Spurs, again, they come on with... Like, uh, Mike Malone had this great quote last night where when he found out they drew the Spurs, he said, uh, you know, Pop has five championship rings. I just have a wedding ring. <laughs> and it, it was a great line, but it, it really kind of captures the the heart of this series where do you, like how do you see it going uh i picked nuggets in seven so uh, i i think it's going to be tight i think it could be a pretty high scoring series because you know like you were saying i don't have a ton of faith in either of these teams defending the other denver's defense slipped over the course of the year 
It did. I mean, the fact that I, I think they still finished in the top 10, they which did. is quite an achievement. I actually have a little bit more faith in them defending the Spurs than the other way around. I just think, I, I don't know if the Spurs really have the personnel or the system to basically burn the Nuggets for, for playing their bigs up high. Um, they, they don't move the ball a ton. We know this. They really rely a lot on isolation play. The Nuggets will do anything they can to avoid switching Jokic onto a guard. And if the Spurs aren't generating those kind of mismatches, then I don't know if they're going to be generating efficient offense. I also, I mean, both these teams really rely heavily on depth. So I think that's kind of a wash there. But Jokic is by far the best player in this series. Uh, I'm very interested to see what he does in his first postseason foray. And... Again, like I think it might just come down to experience and execution and, and how much is that going to matter for San Antonio. I'm also interested to see like both of these teams have played pretty heavy minutes with two center lineups this season with the Spurs, uh, Pirtle and Aldridge, and the Nuggets with Jokic and Plumlee. I think the Jokic and Plumlee front court is far more effective than Aldridge and Pirtle. So I'm just curious to see if, if those lineups match up at all. Um, but again, like tactically, I think this, this could be a pretty interesting matchup. And the one thing it comes down to, I mean, I was saying this even a couple of weeks back, I just, I still don't really trust the Nuggets wings. So, you know, which one of those guys is going to step up? Is it Will Barton or Gary Harris or Malik Beasley? Uh, th- they need one of those guys to be, I think, super reliable for them. Um, I mean, they don't really have a natural matchup for DeRozan. I, I don't know who's going like, to, probably Gary Harris takes that, oh, yeah, I think that, Gary Harris gets that assignment. primary assignment, but uh, he gives up a bit of size in that matchup, so we'll see. Um, I'm really interested to watch this like circa 2012 Lamarcus Aldridge Paul Millsap matchup. Like, do you mm-hmm. remember when that was a debate? Like, who the better? I think Aldridge always won the debate, but there was like a couple years where that was a debate about who was the better Western Conference power forward. This is going back like five, six years. So it's just funny that like they're now you know contesting a, one of the bigger matchups in the series. Yeah, in 2019. And they're both still really like Lamarcus Aldridge can still feast as he did on the last night of the regular season. Paul Millsap, especially on the defensive end, can really change a series. So I think that's a that's an interesting matchup. I also have it going seven. I have the Nuggets. I think this has the potential to be what they call a homer series, mm-hmm. where the home team just wins all seven games. If you look at the way both these teams performed, amazing at home, terrible. They combined on the road. to go sixty-six and sixteen at home. And 36 and 46 on the road. That's incredible. I can just see this series being chalk and the home team winning. And I, Yeah, I, I think that is entirely uh, plausible as an outcome. So Let's keep rolling along. Back to the East. Sixers, Nets. Yeah, so, I mean, you can read about this again in our preview. You thought this was going to be a little bit closer than I did. And I offer the caveat that much of this rides on Joel Embiid's knee which has been a bit bulky. He missed five of the last seven regular season games. He might miss game one of the first round, according to Elton Brand. And that obviously just totally changes the dimension of of this matchup because uh, Embiid is obviously the Sixers' biggest advantage, as he would be against pretty much any opponent, but particularly against Brooklyn, who just doesn't have anybody really who can defend him who can match him for size or strength down low. I mean, he averaged 30 points, 14 boards, five assists in the regular season against Brooklyn. So if he's healthy, you know, even if he's at like 90%, I see this as a five gamer. Um, And as I wrote, I just, I don't think 
the Nets have enough advantages to press against Philly to really make this a series. I think one thing Philly has really struggled with this season is like these super quick point guards who can burn them at the point of attack and get into the paint. The Nets don't really have that guy. I mean, D'Angelo Russell has been great, but he's not super athletic and he's more of like a jump shooter than he is a guy who's going to put pressure on the rim. And they also just don't have a big man who can pull Embiid away from the hoop. So I think he's just going to kind of camp out there and really make life difficult for the Nets when they try to do anything other than shoot jump shots. And I think the Nets are good enough, streaky enough jump shooting team where like they'll get hot for one game and probably steal one at home. Uh, but if Embiid, Embiid is remotely healthy, I, I just don't think this is a fair fight. Yeah, I agree that I think the Nets, they're this like, scrappy, young, quick, um, heat check kind of team that I do think will get hot enough for just one game to steal one. And I agree with what you're saying that the Nets don't really have a mismatch, a advantage anywhere on the board to exploit. But the Joel Embiid thing is massive. Like you mentioned uh, Brooklyn not having an answer for him and how monstrous he was in the season series. Look, I think you saw the. If anyone didn't see it, go check out Brett Brown's last post game press conference of the regular season, where it was shortly after Elton Brand had said Joel Embiid might not be available for um, the first game or games of the playoffs. Someone asks Brett Brown about it. He ends up saying the team is going to put out some sort of statement because he's done dealing with it. In the end, it sounds like n- no real update. He's still, I guess, I don't even know what the status would be considered for game one. Questionable problem. I don't know, but. That health is paramount to how quickly the Sixers can get done with the series. I put this in our preview. I had to check it like three times because I couldn't believe how astronomical it was. But in the four-game season series between Brooklyn and Philly this year, in the 134 minutes Joel Embiid was on the court, the Sixers were a plus 28.1 per 100 possessions. And in the 58 minutes without him, they were a minus 9.5. I think you got that reversed, actually. I think they were plus... Right, correct. Yeah, yeah. Plus 28.1 with Embiid on the court, minus uh, 9.5 without him. Yeah, so, so. They were, it, uh, more than 37 points per 100 possession difference in terms of on-off net rating with Joel Embiid on the court versus off against the Nets this season. Do I think they lose to the Nets without Embiid? No, but I think he he is such a mismatch in this series that I wouldn't even give the Nets a chance, like a puncher's chance of stealing a couple a couple games if Embiid's in the lineup. Mm-hmm. And if he's not, or if that knee's wobbly, if he can't play up to his usual standards, then I really do think the Nets have a chance to be a thorn in Philly's side. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the aspects of that is just that Philly's center rotation behind Embiid is very poor. I mean, it's like Amir Johnson, uh, Boban, Jonah Bolden, Bolden is, might be the best option of those guys, honestly. And, I mean, another option is just to basically let Simmons be the de facto yeah. five. Point like, center. I, it's not like Jared Allen is this hulking beast who's going to hurt you for being, like, a little bit smaller at that position. I think that could be actually really effective. And I've actually, you know, I've said throughout the season that they, they should probably try and look to use that a little bit more, especially with some of their transitional lineups, so they don't have to play some of their poor backup centers. So that might be an opportunity for them to do so. Um, But, I mean, even... Like, let's say Embiid doesn't play this series at all. I still give the edge to the Sixers. I I just think they're better across every position. They have so much size, so much more talent. 
I mean, one thing I'm interested to see, like the Nets have played a lot of zone this season, and that I think can be pretty effective against lineups with Ben Simmons on the floor, obviously. He's a guy who you can really just ignore anytime he's anywhere other than controlling the ball or standing in the dunker spot. But I don't know. I just... Okay, if, if Joel Embiid doesn't play a minute in this series, how many games does it take Philly to beat them? I'm going seven. Really? Yeah. I'd say six. Um, but seven is... Uh, I mean, look, the Sixers have been flat out bad without Embiid on the floor this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, even given the amount of complimentary talent they have, like they have not, they've been outscored by 3.3 points per hundred with him on the bench. All season. That's not yeah. a small sample size. No, it's like, a massive sample yeah. size. Um, so, yeah, it would, de- it would definitely be a concern and would, would totally, totally change the shape of that series. But um, I, I'm choosing to take the optimist view right now and assume that he will be back at some point, hopefully early on in the series, and hopefully it's something close to full strength. Two teams that will be watching that series very closely are the Toronto Raptors and Orlando Magic because mm-hmm. they are in the same half of the East bracket as Philly and Brooklyn. The Raptors are trying to finally put the playoff ghosts of yesteryear behind them. Very new team. They've got Kawhi Leonard. They've got Danny Green. They've got Marcus Gasol. These guys aren't carrying the weight of all those playoff failures in the past. Having said that, the Magic match up pretty well with the Raptors. Their defensive... Uh, versatility in the front court, specifically with Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac, have given Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam especially a lot of problems this season. They waxed the Raptors once at home and once in Toronto. The Raptors won the last meeting. I, You think this is going to be a closer series than I do, so I guess in addition to everything I just said, explain why. Um, okay, so I went Raptors in six, and I recognize that's a longer series than most people have predicted. I, I wouldn't be super surprised if it was a shorter series. And I would like to say that this has nothing to do with the Raptors' failures of playoffs past. Uh, this team is a completely different organism than the ones that have flamed out in the last few postseasons. So I really don't think that that should have any bearing on how we think about this team. But I do think that the Magic match up pretty well. And I think specifically they de- they've defended the Raptors quite well. Vucevic has put an absolute hurting on them on a couple of occasions. And I, I again, will qualify that by saying that was before Marcus Gasol came to Toronto. I mean, he ch- he changed the dynamic, basically. I mean, it made a huge difference. And Vucevic can still stretch him out a bit. Uh, and I think, you know, the pick and pop game will still be pretty dangerous there. But Gasol takes away one of the elements that Vucevic had used to burn them in previous games, which was, I, I don't think he was going to be as effective, nearly as effective as a post scorer. But... I don't know that a defender has done as good a job on Pascal Siakam as Jonathan Isaac has this year. Not many defenders have done as good a job on Kawhi Leonard as Aaron Gordon has done this year. So I think, you know, they have a chance. Like, they will slow things down. They'll make it a half-court series, you know, to the extent that they can. They're a very low turnover team. And as we know, the Raptors really thrive in transition. They're one of the most efficient transition scoring teams in the league. So if the Magic can make it a half-court series, I think that, you know, tilts things in their advantage a little bit. And, and you better believe Steve Clifford's going to make it a half-court series. Absolutely. I mean, Steve Clifford Clifford that's, that's what they've done all season. Yeah. They play slow, and they don't turn the ball over. And you're absolutely right. That's what Steve Clifford has always done. So I, I do think it's going to be closer than people think. Ultimately, I don't think the Magic are going to be able to score enough on the Raptors' defense to swing the upset here. Uh, because, again, like with Gasol there, I think they're just able to neutralize any advantage the Magic might be able to pull out of their hat. And... Um, 
as much as DJ Augustine has had a great season, has actually had some some very good games against the Raptors this year. Um, the the Magic's lack of ball handlers and you know off the bounce playmakers, I think, is going to be their undoing, and they're just going to wind up, I think, relying a little bit too heavily on Terrence Ross, who is my X factor for this series, but that doesn't inspire a ton of confidence. The guy has a forty five percent true shooting percentage in his playoff career. Yeah. Well, he- <laughs> You mentioned that X factor. For the X factor for Terrence Ross might be what he gets up to at night in Toronto. <laughs> if he goes back to some of his old uh, stomping grounds, that, that could be an X factor in this series. But no, my X factor for this series was Toronto's three point shooting. You know, if anyone who's paid attention to the Raptors this year knows, through the first few months of the season, actually going into the trade deadline, they were 23rd in three point shooting, and it didn't make any sense. We talked about it on the show at nauseum, like. They had too many accomplished shooters to be that bad. And some of it is just law of averages evening out. But a lot of it was also the insertion of Marc Gasol into the lineup. Because Marc Gasol, even when he's not the one shooting it, he's either the one passing it or he's the one seeing it three passes ahead and directing guys of where to be. He he makes the Raptors a smarter offensive unit, a more cohesive offensive unit, and he gets guys open looks somehow, some way, just by being on the court. Mm-hmm. And I think... That's a big reason why the Raptors have now been first in three-point shooting since the deadline. They're up to sixth overall. And in just if you look at the matchup with Orlando, the the first couple games they played this season, the Raptors shot just under 31% from deep. The two games they played them with Marcus Gasol in the lineup, they shot over 46% from deep, including the last match when Danny Green just torched the magic. For me, this is the Raptors' talent in general tips the scales, but this is what really tips the scales because, as you mentioned, I don't think Orlando can score enough to keep up with the Raptors. And if the Raptors just continue to shoot, they don't have to shoot 46% from deep. They almost certainly won't. Mm-hmm. But if they're 39-40% and that's offsetting, maybe some of Siakam or Kawhi's struggles against a good defensive team, the Magic just will not be able to keep up. And I, I think it's Raptors in five. I respect the Magic's second half enough. I respect their defense enough to give them a home game. But I, the Raptors are so much more talented, and with yeah. that shooting difference as well, I just I don't see how Orlando keeps it close. For sure, I mean the talent edge is definitely undeniable. And one thing I'll say, this is these are both very good defensive teams. The Raptors don't really have any defenders that you need to hide, and the Magic do. I mean the Magic have to hide DJ Augustine, and in that last game they tried to hide him on Danny Green, and that did not go very well. He absolutely lit them up. So. Um, I think, you know, that is a big difference right there. But just, again, like overall, if you look position to position, the talent edge swings to Toronto, I think, pretty significantly. And that's why I'm picking them to win the series. All right, we're going to move on to the number one seeds now, beginning in the West with the two-time defending, back-to-back NBA champion, Golden State Warriors. Is there a way for this series to end in less than four games? (laughs) (laughs) In less than four games? Um... I, I I might give the Clippers a game in this series, honestly. I, I think it, it could go five. Just given, I mean, maybe the Warriors just crank it back up right away. I think that's kind of hard to do when you've been lazing through an entire regular season to just suddenly kick it into high gear. I don't think it'll matter too much because they're so much better than the Clippers. But the Clippers, frankly, play with an effort and intensity that we haven't seen from Golden State all season. And I think that's going to be enough for them to, to steal a game. Probably one at home. Um, I, you know, I, even if it's like half Warriors fans in the building, I I, uh, I anticipate the Clippers being able to just like, there, there'll be one game when the Warriors are disinterested. Probably they're up 2 nothing, And the Clippers just come out with a ton of fire and the Warriors just don't care enough. And that's enough to swing one game toward the Clips. But other than that, I mean, 
it's sort of like we were saying with the Nets Sixers series. It's like find me one advantage that the Clippers can press against the Warriors. Yeah, there are none that exist. Um, I'll tell you what I'm excited about about this series. I maybe the Clippers do win a game and that'd be fun, but Danilo Gallinari. Oh my god. Um, first of all, him and Lou Williams actually do deserve like two awesome vets, um, great offensive players, and it'll be just kind of fun to see what they can do against the Warriors. But Gallo, especially, again, well aware of the Italian bias here, but this guy's been so good for so long, and he's been so snake bitten with injuries. Even you go back to that memorable series the Nuggets lost to the Warriors after winning 57 games. Gallo didn't get to play in that series because he blew his knee out, I believe, before the playoffs started. He hasn't played in a playoff game in seven years. So I'm genuinely just excited to watch Gallo. Even if it only looks competitive for like one quarter of game one, I'm just mm. genuinely excited to watch him play in the playoffs. If if the Clippers somehow steal like two games or if Gallo has like a 40-point a outburst in this series... I might straight up sing the Italian anthem on the next episode of Power. I believe like, it. Like, um, worth noting that Lou Williams has never been a particularly productive playoff player. Uh, I think part of that you could say is that he just doesn't get the same number of BS fouls that he gets in the regular season. No, that's a hot take. Um, playoff defenses are obviously all a little bit more advanced. Uh, they can key in on him. And, you know... It's not like he's done all of his damage against bench units because he does close games and he's still been insanely effective in the fourth quarter. But like going up against the Warriors defense, I don't think they're going to have too much trouble neutralizing him. You know, if they stick like Iggy on him late in the game um, or Clay Thompson, like I just I can't see him being as effective as he was in the regular season. And I can't see the Clippers defense getting enough stops against the Warriors offense. So, yeah. I'm kind of talking myself into Warriors in four now, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I've come on board the Warriors in three, man. Um, we haven't disagreed on any series result so far in terms of who's actually going to win them. Right. Um, I don't think we're going to be disagreeing on the last one. Bucks Pistons. Yeah. This one's barely worth talking about. Right. Like, and, and that sucks because there would have been at least like some discussion to be had if Blake Griffin was fully healthy, but he's clearly not. He's playing on one leg. All, all due respect to Andre Drummond, who's had a really nice season. I, I don't know. What are the Pistons going to do in this series? Like, they, they maybe stick Drummond on Giannis. Like, he might be their best Giannis defender at this point in time. Bruce Brown, who's a rookie, has actually had a really good defensive season. But he doesn't have the size. And I don't know. How, how do they defend him? Like, they, they just don't. throw three bodies at him every single time. I just, I, I don't know how they make this work. If, if Blake Griffin was healthy... If the Pistons still had like Stanley Johnson and Reggie Bullock, I could see a way for them to like steal a game. Yeah. Maybe two if the Bucks just have a cold shooting night. Uh -huh. But even that is stretching it. Those guys are long gone. Blake Griffin, again, he's playing on one leg. He's hurt enough that he didn't play in a do or die game in game 82 that the Pistons needed to win. And I know it was against the lowly Knicks and they washed them without him. But still, the fact that he didn't play in that game tells you something about how severe... Uh, whether it's how severe the injury is or at least how severe the pain is right now for him not to play in that game. In the second last game of the season with the Pistons down in a game they pretty much needed to win, he ended up having to hobble off the court after like five points in 18 minutes and looked like he was fighting back tears. He's clearly not healthy. The Bucks, whether you believe in them as the championship juggernaut they looked like in the regular season, the fact is they're a 60-win team. They won 45-plus games by double digits. They're top three on both ends of the court. They have, if not the MVP, then the MVP runner-up. They've got great shooting around him. It's like, even if you don't believe they're going to, 
you know, match those numbers in the playoffs, they're sure as hell going to be dominant against a team who right now it looks like Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond will be their best players in the playoff series with Blake Griffin out. Like, there's just no way that team's stealing a game from the Bucs, unless the Bucs are come out and are a completely different team than one we've seen at all this year. Right. Which, yeah, I don't anticipate happening. And obviously the Bucks are a bit banged up too. Brogdon's not going to be playing in this series. Who knows if we'll see Nikola Mirotic in this series. But even without those guys, I just don't see this as being much of a contest. So, yeah, I went Bucks in four, and I don't have that much more to say about it, honestly. All right, before we get to a couple coaches on the hot seat, let's just quickly run through. So we're all in agreement that we see the West second round being Golden State, Houston, Mm-hmm. and uh, Denver Port- Sorry, Denver OKC. So who do you have in the West Finals and who's coming out of the West? Um, man, did this break well for OKC. I mean, I, I think I would have them beating the Nuggets. First of all, the Nuggets have really had a lot of success against the Thunder this Nikola regular season. Nikola Jokic has dominated Steven Adams. Yeah, so I mean, maybe I would have to actually rethink that. I don't know. I, I just, the, the playoff experience thing and... and the way I think that the Nuggets defense can be exploited by a good playoff offense is one thing that's just like I can't get out of my head and I just don't know if I have enough faith in them to get to the conference finals. Also, the Nuggets, I mean, obviously we don't know for sure whether they intentionally tanked that game against the Blazers. They were certainly playing with fire because they almost tanked themselves down to three and would have potentially wound up playing the Rockets without home court advantage in the second round, which would have just been a disastrous outcome for them. This also worked out beautifully for them. You know, they get the Spurs in the first round and they're looking at either getting, you know, a Nurkisless Blazers team or a Thunder team with a lot of question marks in the second round. So I'll stick with the Thunder, but I'm not particularly confident in that pick. And Paul George's shoulder injury is also giving me a lot of concern on that front. I, I think if he's fully healthy, though, the, Nuggets, the Nuggets just like don't really have any good answers for him. And... Obviously, yeah, I picked the Warriors coming out, so I'll say Warriors Thunder. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you because I, I think if if we knew for certain it'd be a Thunder Nuggets matchup, I'd sit down and look at it and maybe I would end up leaning Nuggets. But I think if I have to make the pick right now, when we don't know, we're only going by what we assume will happen in the first round. We both had the Nuggets Spurs series going seven, which means we think there's a chance the Spurs could pull off that upset. And if I at least think... There's a chance the Nuggets won't even be in the set. You know what right. I mean? I just think it's the safer bet to mm-hmm. go with OKC, who I don't think will get as much trouble from Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, things just broke right for them. And I think they'll get to the West Finals, but not yeah. do anything against the Warriors. I also just have this thing, and this applies to the Thunder as well. Like, I don't really trust trapping defenses. In the playoffs, I just think like that's so easy to exploit for, uh, you know, most playoff offenses are going to be stocked with playmaking at pretty much every position. I just think it's easy to scheme around that. If you like, can move the ball, you can... And, and like pass your way into a lot of open corner threes. I just, I don't really trust that. Even though the Thunder had a fantastic defense pretty much all season, I, there's something about it that I just don't quite trust. So I'll say this, if those two teams played, I have more faith in the Thunder being able to execute that scheme than I do in the Nuggets being able to execute it. I think that series would be really close and really, really entertaining. You mentioned the Thunder's um, slipping defense. I think they still finished top 10 in defensive rating, but... The Thunder? Yeah. Yeah, they finished top five. Right. But what's interesting is you remember there was a good chunk of the year where they were the number one defensive team. Mm-hmm. Do you know where they finished in terms of opponents' effective field goal percentage? 
Uh, I would assume pretty low because they obviously... 17th. Yeah. So, I mean, they thrive on forcing turnovers. And that right there just speaks to their trapping D, right? They, Their goal is to turn you over. And if they don't, they're going to give up high-efficiency shots. So, um, it's not too different for the Nuggets. The Nuggets just don't force nearly as many turnovers. I also think that the Nuggets are maybe a little bit more solid on the back end, making those rotations, especially with Millsap there. He's just been excellent. Um It'd be an interesting chess match, and I'm I'm actually kind of hoping now that we do see that matchup in the second round because uh, I have a lot of questions. Agreed. All right. So, and then in the East, we've got um, our predictions would have it Milwaukee, Boston, and Toronto, Philly. So basically, chalk. Um, I'd go chalk again. Bucks, Raptors, and yeah. Bucks. If you're going chalk, it'd be Bucks, Raptors, and then Bucks coming out of it. Um, that I don't know. I think. That is a series like I, I don't think the Brogdon injury affects the Bucks' ability to get to the conference finals without much issue. If he's not back for the conference finals or he's compromised for the conference finals, then I think that might actually be the kind of thing that swings the outcome the other way. I've ridden with the Bucks pretty much all year as like my Eastern Conference favorite. I think they've proven everything that you could ask for a team in their position to prove. Right now, I might lean Raptors. I just think they're like playing a little bit better and might be a little bit better built for the postseason. So a couple weeks ago, I said that I could see, and again, it, it sounds like I'm just like completely disrespecting the Bucks. but a couple weeks ago, I said I could see the, the Raptors-Sixers 2-3 series being like the unofficial East Finals, uh-huh. and that I would take whoever comes out of that series to win the East and get to the Finals. The, the questions around Joel Embiid's knee just scare the hell out of me. Um, you know, I know we're talking about the second and potentially third round, and he should be fine by then. But again, I, with the amount that they rely on Joel Embiid, if he's even 70 or 80% instead of 100%, I'm not taking the Sixers to right. get through two or three rounds in the well, East. That's, so that's also just such a favorable matchup for the Raptors. It is, big time. And they've shown that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going Bucks-Raptors in the East Finals. And in a matchup where I do think there is so little margin for error, I do think something like the Brogdon injury could could swing a series that I, I would have going seven games anyway. Um, and I've said this all year, and I realize that, like, I'm a guy that usually does trust the numbers, and I keep saying everything about the Bucks is showing, like, they're showing us they are a championship-level juggernaut. And yet, every time I sit down to, like, go through playoff matchups, I still come back to the fact, that, like, do I really think a team whose second best player is either Chris Middleton or Eric Bledsoe is mm-hmm. going to get through the toughest Eastern Conference we've seen in years? And the answer is no. And so because of that, I'm going to end up going with the Raptors coming out of the East. Yeah. Well, first of all, Giannis would be the best player in that series, obviously. I think what, what, by, a, okay. by, by a pretty sizable margin. I, I, I would disagree there. Okay. I think the whole... Playoff Kawhi, you're, yeah, you're a believer? I, I really do believe. And forget the whole like load management thing, which is a factor, and the fact that it really does seem like Kawhi's just cruised to a pretty remarkable season. And as even he's even said that like the playoffs is when he really laces them up, which should scare a lot of teams in the East. But playoff Kawhi is a real thing. We've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, Giannis has also been great in the playoffs, don't get me wrong. But like what Kawhi's done on the biggest stages and consistently, all you have to do is go back to the last playoff game he played when he was leading the Spurs charge and they were dominating the Warriors before Zaza Pachulia stepped under him. Like, Playoff Kawhi is a real thing, and I've been saying all year that I think if the Raptors get to the playoffs healthy, I think Kawhi Leonard will be the best player in the East playoffs. Interesting. Um, okay, I'm not quite there. But, I, I, you know, look, the Bucks would still have a lot of advantages in that series. I mean, one of them being Giannis, obviously. 
And the other being Eric Bledsoe, who frankly has kind of torched Kyle Lowry over the years. And if there's one thing that the Raptors defense does struggle with, it's those really shifty, quick guards uh, who can, you know, finish around their size at the rim. And I think Bledsoe's done an outstanding job doing that all season long. If Brogdon's there and he's healthy, that's another thing where it's like, you know, the Raptors really like to play these two-point guard lineups with Lowry and Van Vliet that have been super effective. Brogdon makes that kind of untenable because he has so much size on either one of those guards and has done such an excellent job of leveraging that size to just bully his way to the rim. I think that would be really tough. So I don't know. I I can't call it right now. I think it's close to a coin toss, honestly. But like I said, I, I think if I had to pick now, I would lean Raptors. And last question uh, related to playoff predictions, but Warriors are the field. Are you you going Warriors? Hmm. No. I'll take Woo! the field. Yeah. I think there are enough teams. I think any team that faces them is going to be a, a pretty significant dog, and it's going to be an outside shot, but I think there are enough teams that match up with them well enough. I think they've opened the door just enough, and there's been enough dysfunction there over the course of the season and enough weirdness that I'm willing to say in a very, very narrow choice that I would take the field over. You're getting, getting those uh, 2004 Lakers vibes? Not where... quite, not quite. But, I mean, Milwaukee slapped them when they played them at Oracle this year. The Raptors beat the crap out of them at Oracle without, without Kawhi, Kawhi Leonard. And I, I know that, you know, like that's not particularly indicative of what they're going to look like in the playoffs. I'm sure both Draymond Green and and Kevin Durant are going to be defending at a much higher level than they did in the regular season. This team could just come out and blow the doors off everyone they face. That is still very much on the table. I'm just, I'm not sure I see it to the same extent. And I know people will look to last year where it's like, oh, look at last year. They dragged their feet through the regular season, didn't really care, and turned it on in the playoffs. Well, yeah, they almost lost in the playoffs. Like, they really, they needed Chris Paul to suffer that injury in game five. They needed the Rockets to miss 27 straight threes in game seven to get to the finals. And there was really a bunch of revisionist history that went on after they beat a crappy Cavs team in four games. And it's like, everyone made it out to be this inevitable thing. I don't think it was that at all. I think they very much could have lost that series against the Rockets. I think there's an outside shot. They lose to the Rockets in the second round again. Wouldn't bet on it, but it's possible. I think the Raptors and Bucks both match up with them pretty well. Again, if I'm picking a team, I'm picking the Warriors without but if it's Warriors a second the thought. Field. But Warriors against the field, yeah, I would take the field. No, I like that. Um, just because we got to disagree on something uh, from the last two weeks, I'll still go with the Warriors. But I will agree that I think whoever gets there from the East is going to give them a real scare in the finals. Like, to the point where we're questioning what's going to happen like in game five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, last thing before we go. The Heat segment of our Sweet versus Heat discussions. Give me... A coach out of the 16 playoff coaches this year that you think is on the hot seat depending on what happens in the postseason um maybe billy donovan yeah that's one of the two i was thinking uh i just you know the the thunder have not won a series in the post kd era really this year is like their best opportunity to do it you know they lost to a utah team that they were probably more talented than last season and if that happens again against the Blazers, I think somebody is going to have to fall on their sword. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if he can survive another first round exit when they have literally the highest payroll in the NBA. I just don't know if that's going to cut it. Yep. No, I agree with that. Um, I think uh, it was one thing to, 
you know, remain a playoff contender in the wake of KD leaving. It's another thing to lose in the first round twice after going out and, you know, getting and retaining Paul George. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we mentioned just the way their defense slipped a little bit. This is the second year in a row where they're going to be the favorite in the first round. We just talked about how things broke right for them in the bracket. I don't think him, you know, the Thunder losing a hard-fought series to Denver in the second round would would have Billy Donovan out of a job. But I definitely think if they lose in the first round to the Blazers, he will be out of the job. Brett Brown, I think, is the other That's where I was going. That's what I was going to say. I think there's two guys that are going into this play. Out of the 16 teams, I think there's only two coaches actually on the hot seat. Brett Brown's the other one. The Sixers, again, the process was one thing. Um, Getting to the playoffs was one thing. Winning a round last year and then losing to the Celtics, fine. They went out and got Jimmy Butler. And, you know, got rid of part of the process in doing that in Robert Covington and Dario Saric. Then they went out and got Tobias Harris. They're, you can say what you want about their depth. Their starting five is absurd. Do they have to get to the finals to save Brett Brown's job? No. You could argue they don't even have to get to the conference finals if there's a, a really good second round series with the Raptors that goes seven, six games, and the Sixers you know, continue to show those signs. Maybe he keeps his job. But if the Sixers say, you know, I said the Nets could push them to six or seven, if say they struggle to get out of the first round against the Nets and then don't really compete against the Raptors, I could see Brett Brown being out of a job. I think he's done a very good job, obviously, Mm -hmm. in building up this Sixers culture. But at some point, and Elton Brand clearly signaled it with the the moves he made during the season, at some point, the Sixers are thinking bigger than just being this feel-good story after the process. They want to compete for a championship, and they're going to need to show signs after a regular season where they were actually kind of pedestrian. They're going to need to show signs that they are that team in the playoffs. And if they don't, Brett Brown will not be here next year. Yeah, I mean, I think if they flame out in the second round, I agree with you. Maybe if it's like a super competitive series where it like swings one way or the other based on just like a couple of bounces here or there. That's one thing. But if they lose in five games, say like they did last year, I think he's probably gone. And I feel for him. I mean, has anybody's job in the NBA changed more than his has over the past two years? I mean, think about the team he was coaching two years ago and what his mandate was compared to what it is now. Uh, The expectations have just changed so dramatically in such a short period of time. And it's obviously been a huge adjustment and, and, you know, tactically there's been a huge adjustment just over the course of this season. Like they turned over half their roster this year. So that's not an easy thing to do, but I mean, you're right. Like what do they have to show for those trades where they shipped out a, a lot of valuable assets? They have a worse record than they had last year. They have a slightly better offense, a considerably worse defense, a worse net rating and are staring at the likelihood of losing in the same round of the playoffs They've invested a ton in this season, and I just don't know if that's going to be satisfactory. Yeah, that's uh, nothing else to add to that. Yeah. All right, that that does it for us on this edition of Pound the Rock, and we're back with you next week. The playoffs will be in full swing. We did it, man. We made it. I feel like, you know, last week we played some Sarah McLaughlin. I feel like <laughs> this week we should play some uh, Shania Twain. You're still the one just for that looks like we made it line. Oh, man. Um, yeah, man, I'm excited that uh, we're finally here. I- Couldn't be more thrilled. Let's get it going. Let's get it.